This is the Bad Hops Podcast, a baseball podcast where we discuss everything but the box score. So if you're looking to compare Doris Sami Sam's ERA to her RBIs, or want to know how many runners Ruth Richard gunned down on the base path, this is not the place. But if you believe throwing like a girl is not an insult, welcome. We're your hosts. I'm Mark Butler. And I'm Jackie McCoochie. And today, we're in a league of our own. Welcome to Bad Hops. So, Mark, this used to be my playground. Sorry, I had to get a Madonna reference in there. Does this mean I need to do some Rosie O'Donnell material? I mean, maybe. You know, you just throw in a little quip every now and then. I could probably do a better job of doing like Gina Davis in The Fly than I can do Rosie O'Donnell stuff. But maybe I'll just pick my own Madonna song. And if you all haven't guessed from all of our incredible banter about aging celebrities, we are talking about some of the stars of the movie A League of Our Own, which is now a TV series. But all of this leads into something bigger, which is women in baseball. Now, we've covered women in baseball before, but this is actual women actually playing baseball. And I'm super excited about that because we got some past, present, and future cool stuff to chat about. We but I've, I've heard that this movie that you're, you're bringing up they, they made it into a TV show. Is that for real? I know, right? Have you heard anything about it? I don't know if you've seen. I don't know if there's there's not been a lot of publicity around it. There's not been a lot of excitement and attention about it. So you might have missed it, that there's an Amazon series. That would be A League of Their Own on Amazon Prime, which I'm now boycotting, sadly, because they canceled Paper Girls. I know. Another really good show. Not a lot of baseball involved, but that that's okay. No, um, it was more what was field hockey, right? Is that what the one of them played? Yes, field hockey. Probably one of the best field hockey shows I've ever seen. So, Mark, you have not seen the series yet, but I'm assuming you have seen the 1992 movie. Yes, I have seen the movie. No crying in baseball, okay. yada, yada, yada. I am keen on seeing the show. I just, there's been so much good stuff on this summer. It's not baseball related. Actually, there's been some good baseball on the old televisual machine as well. It's been a fairly decent season, as it turns out. But I haven't had time for the series, A League of Their Own. But it's got some really cool people involved. It does. It has a really good cast, really great writer's room, really diverse writer's room. Got our old friend Abby Jacobson from Broad City. And our other old friend uh, from The Good Place. Darcy Darcy. Carden. Darcy Carden. Darcy Carden. Not Darcy from The Smashing Pumpkins, although that would be interesting as well. That that would be interesting. And yeah, it could happen. The show is is a little different than the movie. It does, I will say, what's nice about it is that it gets to be a little bit more historically accurate. And also we get to see, while there weren't any players of color, in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, we do get to see there is a whole side storyline about women of color, their lives, their involvement in baseball as well. So it's nice that that they are able to talk and get into that particular side of the story. Because if you remember in the movie, basically it's just a black lady throwing a baseball to Gina Davis who catches it. It's like, oh, she can throw hard. Well, black women can't play. Oh, well. And that's where it begins 
means an end. So that's what's nice about the TV show is there's a lot more going on. Obviously, you have more time to develop. 1992 compared to now, very different, very different. So I would uh, encourage you to watch it because I did tell one of my good friends that she should watch it. Said to her, you know, it's a good storyline. There's a, there's a lot of baseball. And she's like, I don't know. There's baseball in it. I can't, I don't know if I can watch it with baseball in it. But then she she watched it and agreed that there was more than just baseball. And a, a distinct lack of Madonna. But not a distinct lack of Rosie O'Donnell. So there's a little little uh, spoiler uh-huh. alert for you. A little little teaser of the future. Well, yeah, I'm excited to hear that the historical accuracy quotient has been ratcheted up because I know that the movie was technically a true story, certainly not a documentary. And I think a lot of liberties were taken and a lot of shortcuts especially were taken to to get the viewer from point A to point B quickly, which uh, I, I get it. I get narrative tension and storytelling dynamics and things like that. It is fascinating to know that there actually was a league of women baseball players in the 30s and 40s that this existed at a time when there weren't a lot of showcases for women's talents in general, apart from on that uh, wireless radio that people like to do their singing and dancing on. I'm planning to check it out. I like the the people that are in it. I like knowing that there's going to be a little bit more of truth to be told. Let's talk some more about historical accuracy. I'm counting on you to be at 110% tonight on accuracy because you're going to tell us about the league. About in your own words. <laughs> in, in, in my own words, yes. yes. And I'm going to be in a league of my own. I do want to point out before I get into the actual, like the actual league and how it formed and all that, I thought it was interesting that both the movie and the TV series, they start with the inaugural season, which was 1943. And they always make it seem like that's like, especially the movie, the series is a little bit, obviously it's, you know, it's hinting towards that this is going to continue, but they make it seem like that was it. Like it was over that, that, the, you know, the, that it was going to die after this, this particular season, the league lasted for 12 years. So it was not a total and complete flash in the pan over in a second, I guess, because the movie decided to focus on the Rockford peaches and the series also focuses, obviously it's an homage to the, to the movie, but also focuses on the Rockford peaches. The peaches, didn't even sniff the playoffs in the inaugural season. So I thought, so I just wanted to, to mention that they do, they did eventually did win a couple of championships later on, but they were not in the mix. They were not a very good team in the beginning stages of this league. So I just wanted to point out, I thought that thought it was interesting. I don't know. I didn't do a dive into why they decided that it would be the Rockford Peaches other than, I don't know, maybe they like their unis. I don't know. Oh, uniforms. Listen to our episode about uniforms. It wouldn't be a bad hops if we didn't call back to another. another This whole podcast series is just like one of those like uh, crime boards, right? Where like you got the pieces of yarn, you got uh, all of the suspects up on the board. And it's like, hmm, is it John Goodman? Is it related to uniforms? Does it have superstitions involved? (laughs) Yes, it does. Does it have Madonna? I feel like Madonna has come up too many times in this podcast. She really has. Well, you know, Madonna just comes up so many times in life in general, so. She tends to not go away. That's sort of the Madonna over the last 20 years, in, in my personal opinion. And I can't wait for the Madonna stands to come come at us on this one. We're scared of uh, Swifties, and now we're scared of, what are they called, Mad Hens? I don't know. 
I don't know. Does she? Ha- I don't know what they what they have. Oh, I feel like you were about to insinuate. Does she have fans? No, not that she has fans. But I was gonna. I was gonna actually say is is that this is something that's come later on. So is she like too old for that Swifties? And anyway, we're here to celebrate women in baseball, we, and here we are. Uh, exactly. We let, let's yeah, let's women let's, in pop on Madonna. Madonna. Just bashing Madonna, which who I have, happen to to love. So. Do not come at me, Madonna fans. I, I I do love the the old material girl. I hope you live to tell your story. Thank you. I hope I live to tell tell my tale. And you know what? We're going to take a break, and then I am going to tell the tale of the All American Girls Baseball League, or was it the All American Girls Baseball League? Let's talk about the league, Jackie. You have really been digging in. I think you've actually found other teams that are besides the Rockford Peaches. You found some cool insider information, not just about how the quality of play progressed in the league, but the quality of living and quality of presentation. First, I want to state my sources before I dig into everything. I will say the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, they have an amazing website, tons of history on it, tons of information. If you want to know more, start there. Baseball Hall of Fame, has a, their website has a little bit of information, our old friend Wikipedia, an autostraddle article, which was about comparing what was going on with the series and what's actual, you know, what was factual, and an ESPN article from way back that talked about what was factual from the movie and what wasn't. So those are my big sources. And I could have gone down a rabbit hole, but I, I stopped myself. So now the league, as I was hinting, It was actually originally called the All-American Girls Softball League. Oh, the dreaded S word. The dreaded S word. You know how I feel about softball, but I'll get more into that shortly. But softball apparently was enormously popular back in the day. By the fall of 1942, many minor league teams were disbanding because young men, 18 years and older, were being drafted to fight in the big one, WW2. And no, I'm not talking about wrestling. <laughs> that be WWE, WWF. What is that? These you're, talking, you're talking about World War Mania. That's right. Two. Or two. I'm talking about two. World War Two. And the fear was that, you know, Major League Baseball parks would struggle because the franchises were starting to lose some of their quality players, which means they wouldn't attract crowds. I mean, big, big Famous players like Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams served during World War II because they, this was, you know, this, obviously this was a big deal, right? They wanted to go out there. Baseball was not their prime focus, but of course the owners (laughs) who were older and, oh, so what, there's this war going on. We've got to think about how we can continue to bring in profits, but also there was an altruistic how are we going to entertain people while the war is going on? I think there was that bend as well. But, you know, we all know at the end of the day. It all boils down to on-field product. So because of this, the players being drafted in World War II, this prompted good old Philip K. Wrigley. You know yeah. him. Wrigley Spearman Gum, chewing gum mogul, who inherited the Chicago Cubs from his dad. I hadn't realized he had actually inherited the team, but I should have known. He asked Ken Sells, the assistant to the Chicago Cubs general manager, to head a committee to come up with ideas. So they wanted to come up with ideas. How are we going to keep baseball going? What should we do? 
the committee recommended a girls softball league to be established and that they would play in major league parks should the attendance fall. Wrigley originally thought major league parks could profit from having the women play on the dates that the men's teams were scheduled to be on the road. So yeah, you know, kind of like let's switch on and off. He calculated this would maximize the use of parks, which were now only being used 50% of the time. He approached other owners. However, the idea was not well received. I could not find any quotes. I, I, you know, I did a little digging. Maybe if I did more digging, I could have found maybe some great quotes as to why they wouldn't do this, but owners weren't into it. I feel like my good pal, uh, Albert Goodwill Spalding, was already dead at this point, but I'm sure he <laughs> would have objected because he hated women even coming to games, it felt like. Exactly. So as a result, four non-major league cities were selected that were in close proximity to where the league headquarters were at the time, which was in Chicago. So the cities chosen were Racine, which are the Bells, and Kenosha, which are the Comets, both in Wisconsin. We have our Rockford Peaches, which Illinois, and the South Bend Blue Sox, Indiana. So those were the, they started with four clubs, I already know I'm pulling for Kenosha here because that is the home of the Morris Cheese Castle. I don't know if it was around back then. Yeah. It might have been. It might have been. That Cheese Castle's been around for a while. Yeah. Now, Uh, obviously, we're getting the car. We're going to Kenosha. (laughs) We're going to Kenosha. And quite honestly, the Kenosha Comets is the best of the names there. I'm sorry. No offense to all you Rockford Peaches fans. So Arthur Meyerhoff, nice, nice Italian name. (laughs) Wrigley's advertising director was given the responsibility of coordinating operations with city officials and civic leaders in the communities around. A projected budget was developed. Wrigley agreed to fund half the cost of operating each team and all the over-budget expenses. The host city directors then agreed to pay the other half of projected operating costs. So now they had a business model okay, what do you have to do next? They need to get players, right? In the beginning, the young women were were recruited mostly from softball teams, from local softball teams, because softball was incredibly popular. In fact, it was enormously popular starting in the late 1880s. And by 1942, more than 200,000 softball teams existed in the U.S., including, according to Time magazine, an estimated 40,000 women's softball teams. And it included touring clubs such as, and Mark, you're going to like these names, Barney Ross's Adorables and (laughs) Slapsy Maxie's Curvaceous Cuties. Wow, this sounds like the the story of Patty Wagon on another <laughs> previous episode, the stripper yeah. married to a major league pitcher. Slappy Maxie's Curvaceous Cuties? Slapsy Maxie's Curvaceous Cuties. Say that 10 times fast. Although I think I need a t-shirt. If there aren't any, then maybe we actually start need to start doing merch. I think so. I think we do. I think this is what, what sparks us to do merch. There were also local leagues with big fan bases, including a beloved, well-attended Chicago Women's Softball League that inspired journalist Herb Graffis to note at the time, it has been no secret to sports fans in the Midwest that girls softball in Chicago has been outdrawing the major league baseball clubs. So, yeah, right? Who knew? I certainly didn't. And here I've been dissing softball forever. Who knew? (laughs) Admittedly, the Cubs had been in a drought 
already for 40 years. That's true. So That's why, very true. Why pay big dollars to go to a Cubs game when you could go to a women's softball game instead? We had to finish out the century before you even had a chance yeah. for the Cubs to win a World Series. So some of the rules were altered to increase excitement you know, within the game. The ball was slightly smaller. The pitching distance was longer. Base stealing was permitted. And the game lasted nine innings rather than softball seven. These rules changes inspired the league to switch out softball for baseball midseason. In 1943, the league began by using a sped-up game of the fast-pitch softball. So no slow pitch here, just fast-pitch. After four years of fast-pitch, the league shifted to a limited sidearm, and that was in 1946, which was modified to full sidearm in 1947 until overhand pitching came into effect in 1948. And then from there on, it was there was overhand pitching. Created a little bit of an issue because, with recruitment, right? Because you're, you know, you're changing how these women are throwing. So it's like, it's going to change your recruitment. But there is a very famous player who was part of the league later on named Jean Fout, who was considered the greatest overhand pitcher in the league. And she pitched two perfect games and two no hitters. So there were definitely women who could handle the overhead, the overhand, the overhead, the overhead pitching. What's that? (laughs) The overhand pitch. That's the EFIS pitch. (laughs) That is the EFIS pitch. For recruitment now, they needed to bring in some scouts, right? To to get these, these ladies. So they brought in Jim Hamilton, who was a 30-year veteran. He was also a Chicago Cubs scout. He was hired as the head of procurement to locate and sign women from all across the United States. And in Canada, his counterpart was Johnny Gottsielig, a former defenseman for the Chicago Blackhawks, which is, as everyone knows, a hockey team. So by sending out scouts and setting up tryouts in dozens of major cities, Wrigley attracted thousands of women from all across the U.S. and Canada. And of these, only 280 were invited to the final tryouts in Chicago. So they did try out at Wrigley Field. And then from there, only 60 women were chosen to be part of this league. So they really had a big pool of talent and they whittled it down and they whittled it down. So one of the things that I mentioned was the factor of race and who was allowed to play in the league. So, of course, this is what during segregation. So black women were excluded from the league. They were not allowed to play. However, there was a grand total of 11 Latina women who were who were recruited by the league. And according to the official A League of Their Own Instagram account, the character Lupe Garcia was inspired by Mexican-American pitcher Marge Vila, who joined the league in 1946, and Esti Gonzalez by Cuban player Isabel Lefty Alvarez, who joined the league when she was 15 and is also the subject, I found out, of a documentary called Latin Nights, The Baseball Journey of Isabel Alvarez. So we're going to have to watch that at some point, Mark. Is Madonna in it? I don't know, but she might be. (laughs) Okay. It stands to reason she could be a talking head and something, but no, I would actually love to watch a a true documentary about the women's league. As you know, baseball had been Cuba's top national sport apparently since the 1870s. So the league did hold their 1947 spring training in Cuba where they scouted Eulalia Gonzalez, the first woman from Cuba to join the league. But many of the Cuban players, they felt homesick and they struggled because there was a language barrier. So a lot of them, their careers were cut a little shorter because they just, they couldn't adjust. It was a cultural change. And, you know, back then 
what people didn't speak multiple languages the way they they do now you didn't you, you know baseball wasn't quite the world sport that it has become ac- across the years also it's um, hard to get I, I would imagine it would have been very hard to find plantanos in chicago in the yes. in the world war ii period <laughs> for sure so there were some latinas in the league but mostly it was made up of white women while there were women on the field, the entire managerial staff was indeed men, with the exception of, of course, there was a female chaperone because, you know, ladies can't be, you know, got to be protected from those, those nasty guys out there. So pay was very good. Uh, salaries were high for these young players, and some of them were as young as 15, and they were making, which would be considered at that time, bank. In many cases, they were making more than their parents. In fact, salaries range from $45 to $85 a week plus. Now, to put that into context, I went onto the Social Security website, their salary. From the early part of, uh, of 1940 to the middle of 1943, the average weekly wages in manufacturing were between $26 to $45 a week. What's interesting about that, white-collar salaries were $24 to $29 a week. So... Very much, and now a part of this is, you know, with the war going on, there was quite a bit of manufacturing that needed to be done. But yeah, manufacturing jobs paid more. I feel like we're homing in on when uh, management officially took over labor in terms of the the sweepstakes. Pretty much. So I found that little tidbit interesting. So Mrs. Wrigley and obviously Mr. Wrigley's wife. So she got, I don't know why she got involved. I mean... Wow. I I love all the hot gossip here. It's like, oh, Mrs. Wrigley, is she married to Mr. Wrigley? She was. She was. Uh, And Wrigley's art designer, Otis Shepard, they were involved with designing the league uniforms because, as you know, they wore those lovely little little skirts. Actually, Anne Harnett, she was a big Chicago softball star, and she she was the first to actually sign a contract for the league. So she became a model for the new uniforms. And the uniforms, as you know from seeing seeing both the movie and the TV series, is the same. It's a one-piece, short-skirted, flared tunic, and it was fashioned after figure skating, field hockey, and tennis costumes of the period. So it does have that look to it, right? It does look more like you would be wearing it for tennis than to play. Well, and I think costumes is a good term too, because there is a little bit of a theatrical flourish to all of this because uh, it's not exactly the most athletic wear that you've ever seen. No, no, not at all. I mean, they gave them satin shorts because, you know, you don't want to see the ladies, the ladies bloomers. You don't want to. So they gave them the satin shorts underneath and the high baseball socks. Again, it's like, it's like, it reminds me of Ginger Rogers. Like, yes, I danced as well as Fred Astaire, but I did it backwards. It's like, yes, I played baseball, but I played it in a dress. One of Wrigley's main concerns in promoting the league was to avoid the image of the best barnstorming women's softball teams that were, quote unquote, short-haired, mannishly dressed toughies. And that's as described by Jack Fincher in a 1989 Smithsonian article. In other words, Wrigley wanted to distance the league from being a bunch of lesbians. So that's really what that was about. They, these are just straight all-American girls. And, you know, not all of them were straight. Spoiler alert. Therefore, femininity was a high priority. Wrigley contracted with 
Helena Rubenstein's beauty salon to meet with the players at spring training. So there you go. You're all to, hey, you're going to get a makeover. After their daily practices, the women were required to attend Rubenstein's evening charm school classes. So that is actually factual from both the movie and the series. They did go to charm school. The proper etiquette for every situation was taught and every aspect of personal hygiene, mannerisms, and dress code was presented. And I will get more into charm school after the break. Mark, are you, are you ready to go to charm school? I'm honestly surprised that I'm invited to still be on the podcast at this point because I thought, uh, much like being sent away to military school, that you had maybe had some plans to send me away to charm school and uh, straighten up my act here because for an audio-only podcast, not going to lie, I come in looking like a slob almost every episode. So oh, yeah, you're I, a I, I, I could stand, yeah, I, I could stand to... Uh, to learn a little bit more and maybe uh, join a women's barnstorming baseball team. That's right. And, and project that short-haired uh, butchness. That's right. That's right. I don't know. I think probably some of them were tougher than you. Uh, all of them? <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. What I'm going to read now is directly from the league's charm school guide. When you become a player in the All-American Girls Baseball League, you have reached the highest position that a girl can attain in this sport. The All-American Girls Baseball League is getting great public attention because it is pioneering a new sport for women. You have certain responsibilities because you too are in the limelight. Your actions and appearance both on and off the field reflect on the whole profession. It is not only your duty to do your best to hold up the standard of this profession, but to do your level best to keep others in line. Gee whiz. (laughs) So the women were issued an All-American Girls Baseball League beauty kit, and it said you should always have the following. Cleansing cream, lipstick, rouge medium, okay, Cream deodorant, mild astringent, face powder for brunette. So if you're a blonde or I don't know, you're out of luck, got to get your own. Hand lotion, hair remover. There's a whole section about making sure you're not hairy, like how you should use your, your hair remover. You should be the best judge of your own beauty requirements. Keep your own kit replenished with the things you need for your own Toilette and your beauty culture and care. I feel confident in saying that the spitball was banned in this league because that would be unladylike. It would be very unladylike. I wonder if they did, you know, who would know, right? (laughs) But yes, I'm sure it was not. I'm sure it was not allowed. I'm, I'm going to read you the after game beauty regime. So Mark, you know, next time you play baseball, whatever. Oh no. After, after this episode. I'm going to go upstairs and I'm going to I'm going to attend to my toilette. Your toilette. Remember, the all-American girl is subjected to greater exposure through her activities on the diamond, through exertion in greater body warmth and perspiration, through exposure to dirt, grime and dust and through vigorous play to scratches, cuts, abrasions and sprains. Well, you're making them wear damn dresses. Of course, they're going to be subject to scratches, cuts and abrasions. Don't be a sweaty Betty, though. Don't be a sweaty Betty. I'm surprised that's not in there. 
This means extra precaution to assure all the niceties of toilet. I just want to say toilet every time and personality, especially after the game, the all American girl should take time to observe the necessary beauty rituals to protect both her health and appearance. Here are a few simple rules that should prove helpful and healthful after the game. One, shower and soak the skin. <laughs> Dry thoroughly to avoid chapping or chafing. Okay. I mean, so, you know, don't put on your clothes when you're damp. I mean, okay. Apply cleansing cream to face and remove with tissue. Wash face with soap and water, which I don't know, you, did people not wash their face in the shower? Is that like round a pound? I don't know. Apply skin astringent. Astringent is very important, apparently. Yeah. Apply rouge moderately, but carefully. So you don't want to look like Bozo the Clown when you're putting on your rouge. Apply lipstick with moderate taste. Apply eye makeup if considered desirable. So it's optional. Optional. Okay. If you, you know, so you don't necessarily have to do it. Um, apply powder. And then check all cuts, abrasions, or minor injuries, because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to get a nasty infection or something. There are additional sections on teeth, body, deodorant, eyes, the windows of the soul, uh, hair, women's crowning glory, mouth, hands, and face. All beauty comes from within. And I'm just going to note this for the mouth lipstick section. There is a whole thing on how to how to apply your lipstick, but then. There's caution. Now that you have completed the job, be sure that the lipstick has not smeared your teeth. Your mirror will tell the tale and those little final touches that really count. Okay, I gotta ask. The pay package that you described was very generous. I was actually very impressed that, that they were making a, a competitive wage compared to like men on an assembly line. I, that, that was actually very cool. I feel like that there are a lot of chargebacks. Do they have to pay for their own makeup kits and personal beauty kits? And, and did they have to buy this manual? Because a lot of time and effort was put into creating all of the peripheral stuff here. You know, I'm not sure the, the manual was actually issued to them. I'm not sure about whether or not they um, had to buy the right. It sounded like they had to replenish their own um, items. I don't know if maybe Helena Rubenstein gave them a discount. It would have probably, you know, or if they were spokespeople for spokeswomen for her products. So I'm not sure if that happened. But yeah, I mean, you know, women in general, we have to spend more money on our grooming because, you know, that's just that's just the, the lot in life, right? But there's definitely some multi-level marketing vibes to all of this stuff. You must do this. And of course, a successful person will do this. And it's like, oh, and all of those things I just described will cost you. Right. You 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 exactly. need you need that medium rouge and the the brunette, what was it, face powder? <laughs> face powder for brunettes only. Yes. So, you know, yeah. Not really sure how that worked. But I mean, I guess like all this grooming and, you know, it, it worked because the players actually did have groupies and they were called Clubhouse Clydes or Locker Room Leonards. Now I want a jersey that says Clubhouse Clyde on it. Done. There's your Christmas present. Done. Wow. Thank um, you. You're I'm welcome. i hold you to that. We have recorded evidence that you're going to get this for me. 
So Helen Callahan St. Aubin, who played for the Fort Wayne Daisies, said in 1992, wherever we were, guys used to hang outside our hotel, hollering up to us, we throw our bras down to them. I'm sure wow. that was frowned upon. Oh, I'm guessing that that, that, that was that got added upon. to the manual, the second edition. <laughs> Do not throw your bra out the window to gentlemen. <laughs> Do not throw any articles of clothing, but especially undergarments and foundation wear. Don't throw your foundations down to, to your gentleman callers. To Clyde and Leonard. To Clyde or to or to Leonard while they're down there. So now, uh, Mark, let, let, we can take another little break now that we, we are set up with our charm school. I need to check my lipstick to make sure it's not on my teeth. But when we, when we get back, and I know that this is not a video podcast, but still, it's just the point of it. I need to make sure that my lipstick is applied correctly. I'll get into uh, more about the history of the league and, and what came to pass. <laughs> I'm done powdering my nose. My, my lipstick is not on my teeth, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking okay. I check for abrasions and cuts that I sometimes get when we do the podcast. We get pretty rough and tumble here. There's often a lot of bruises and black eyes by the, the end of each episode. The League was actually, and I think I brought it up, the League was actually became pre- pretty popular. So the first year, it drew about um, 210,000 fans, or an average of 1,000 uh, fans per game. By 1948, however, when the league had expanded to 10 teams, it drew about 900 million people like for their you know, overall attendance throughout. So the attendance was quite good. Like I said, the, the movie and the series, they take a little poetic license with, oh no, will the league, you know, what will happen to the league? But people were wanted like, and men and women wanted to see sports and they wanted to see good sports. And we can, we'll get more into, into, into that later on. So life was great. The All-American host cities organized junior leagues for young girls 14 years and older. So they were starting to expand, right? Starting to uh, become like ambassadors for the sport. The teams would travel to different locations for spring training. I love these uh, these locations. Pascagoula, Mississippi was one location that they went for spring training. That was in 1946. They went to Havana, Cuba in 1947. And then in 1949, they went to Opalaca, Florida. So exotic locales. Hard to pronounce locales at, at the very least. Yeah, well, Pascagoula I have heard of. Opalaca I have not. And maybe I'm butchering it, but it's Florida. You let me know. You can sing Havana for us, right? Oh, Havana. Havana is, you know, that, I mean, that's, you know, probably the only place that intrigues me at this point. But who knows? I don't know. Never been to Pascagoula or uh, Opalaca. So maybe, maybe I'm missing out on something. I don't know. The league acquired franchises for two more teams in Peoria, Illinois, and Muskegon, Michigan. And a four-team minor league was established in Chicago as the Chicago Girls Baseball League. So they even had a minor league system. So it was was full-fledged. They had ambitious postseason tours in Cuba and South America uh, because they were planning on creating an international league of girls baseball. The Springfield Sallies and Chicago Colleen's, I, I love those names, they were added to the league in 1948, but lost their franchises by the end of that season. So for the next two years, the Colleen's and Sallies became rookie training teams that played exhibition games and recruited new talent as they toured around mostly the South and the East Coast. Highlights of these tours included 
games in DC at Griffith Park and New York's Yankee Stadium. So like there was a there was a lot going on. This was a legitimate league. They were promoting it. They were putting money into it. In the first three years after World War II, teams often attracted between two and three thousand fans to a single game. One league highlight occurred when an estimated 10,000 people saw a 1946 Fourth of July doubleheader in South Bend, Indiana. The league peaked in attendance during the 1948 season when the 10 teams, as I said, attracted, did I say 910,000? I think I said million. Not that, that is wrong. They attracted, I mean, any sport that attracted 900,000 million. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. It was 900,000. I would like to invest in this league. I mean, me too. I don't know why it folded if they had that many people attending. So excuse that. I don't, my typo there. However, attendance was started to decline. And one of the reasons was that there was a decrease in revenues from the decentralization of the league. And also there, there became operational issues. So at the end of the 1950 season, the director's voted to purchase the league from Arthur Meyerhoff and operate their teams independently. And that's when things started to kind of started to fall apart. Max Carey resigned as league president and he was replaced. So there was no centralized control of publicity, promotion and player procurement. So that obviously all three of those very important, right? So the league began to break up because of this. And the 1954 season ended with only five teams remaining. So it was Fort Wayne, South Bend, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, and Rockford. So those were the, the last of the league. So basically, bad business is what brought down the league. I'm going to end on this note here from the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League site. By the way, every time I say that, I'm so proud of myself that I'm that I can remember all that. And all that in Pascagoula, Mississippi as well. Pascagoula, Pascagoula. Yeah, yeah. From the site, it says, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League gave over 600 women athletes the opportunity to play professional baseball and to play it at a level never before attained. So there you go. A league of their own, women playing baseball at a high level, fans in the stands. Let's do it again. I agree. You know what? I'm going to take us on a trip around the world, sparing no expense, using the magic of words. Are we going to Pascagoula? Pascagoula, lady. We're doing All it. All right. I'll strap uh, in. We're, we're going to take a tour uh, and see maybe if we can put this band back together, because I would love right. to see it. Banning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sports, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat, the human drama of athletic competition. This is Bad Hop's wide world of women in baseball. Do you like that? Nice you like, nice you like, you like watching me hold my nose while I, I, I do did. my I own enjoyed part? Holding it. You couldn't just do it with your own voice, huh? Cool. We're going around the world. I'm excited. Well, no lie, it is a little frustrating to have to look around elsewhere, but the United States currently lacks the infrastructure to support a thriving baseball scene for women. Personally, I think if you want more people to be excited about the game, you need to engage them on multiple levels. You want more American-born players of color in MLB? Well, you need to make sure those folks have little league opportunities and chances to play all the way up through the development cycle. 
You want women coming out to the ballpark? You can't just have stitch and pitch nights once a season. You got to give them heroes. You can't have a Sue Bird or Alex Morgan to look up to in baseball if there aren't any games to watch. So let's span that globe and we'll leave the United States. First stop, Japan. Ooh. Yes, the former home of Joe Pepitone continues to get it right on the diamond. <laughs> let's continue to throw back to other episodes. If we if we don't throw back to literally every episode of Bad Hops tonight, I'm, I'm I feel that I have not done my work. Nippon Professional Baseball, which is the MLB of Japan, is developing a league of their own for women ballers. According to the Asahi News, three NPB teams have laid the groundwork for affiliated women's teams, amateur teams, admittedly, but this is tapping into an MLB equivalent structure in Japan. The Yomiuri Giants announced in December of last year, 2021, that their women's team will start playing in 2023 and named its first four members, including Ayuri Shimano, who is a 17-year-old star of the Koshin Tournament, which is the big high school tournament, the Friday Night Lights of, of Japanese baseball. I didn't even know that there was a women's division as well as the men's division, which is the famous one, but... Yeah, I didn't know that either. But, you know, I, I'm not surprised with how much the Japanese love baseball. That absolutely makes sense. So Ayuri Shimano, who already commands a 75-mile-an-hour fastball, which admittedly is not the sort of stuff that you're seeing in the American big leagues, but a 75-mile-an-hour fastball is going to get a lot of people out. Jamie Moyer made a whole career on that, didn't he? That's right. The slow poke. And you know what? People like that succeed if they have command. And if she helped her team, the Kobe Koryo Gakuhin high school team, she helped them to victory. That 75 mile an hour fastball clearly was enough to get the job done. So her high school team won the 25th National Female High School Baseball Championship in the summer of 2021. She will be playing for the and I don't think they've named the teams yet. This is all very early days. The The league will start playing next year. But the Yomiuri Giants and the Cebu Lions and the Hanshin Tigers in Osaka all will have a affiliated women's amateur team. I suspect other big league NPB teams will be following suit as well. And I, I would imagine that they'll at least get to an even number of maybe four or six teams. This is cool. When we go back to Japan to go to see baseball, we're going to go check this stuff out for sure. Japan is opening up, by the way. Did you see that? That's what I'm hearing. Apparently, uh, yep. you no longer have to go as part of a tour group, which That's right. was giving me all sorts of hives thinking about having to ride on a bus with a lot of people from Peoria and Rockford and Pascagoula and any other Kenosha. city. Op Opalaka. Yes. Opalaka, yeah. I will sit next to people from Kenosha as long as they bring that uh, cheese crock. It is good that Japan is reopening because my bet is that this is where we will see the first female big league player. We came really close in 2008 when Eri Yoshida was drafted at the age of 16 by the Kobe 9 Cruise, which was an independent league pro team. So not quite NPB level, but a pro team. Ari was a sidearm knuckleball pitcher, which already makes her a goat to me. I don't care that she would be the first female pro baseball player. A sidearm knuckleball pitcher 
is just, I want to see I, that. <laughs> I, I, I can't even. I'm trying to imagine that sidearm, a sidearm knuckleball, how that works. As much as I love a good origin story for like Ms. Marvel or She-Hulk or whatever, the Ari Yoshida origin story. At the age of 14, she loved watching Tim Wakefield from the Boston Red Sox so much that she decided she would develop her own sidearm delivery and started throwing a knuckleball. And knuckleballs, it doesn't matter how fast or slow you throw them, right? Because it's all about the crazy motion that makes people want to swat at those balls like flies. Ari never made it to NPB, but she was on the pro radar. And I think she came, she came closer than almost anybody at this point. If it doesn't happen in Japan first, it might just happen in... Oh, sorry, Jackie. I, I wrote France. Wait, it, it is France. <laughs> what? Wait, wait. Mon Dieu. Noted world baseball power France. Because I've also learned about Melissa Mayu from Louviers, France. And she is a 22-year-old shortstop. And she is the first female player to be added to MLB's international registration list. And she hit that list when she was 16 years old. C'est magnifique. Yes, oui. <laughs> yes, oui. Très bien. <laughs> C'est vrai, Jacqueline. <laughs> Being on the international registration list is far from a guaranteed contract or even a draft slot, but it is a significant step for a non-U.S. player of a, of a younger age. I found this in Bleacher Report, and there's a quote from MLB Director of International Game Development, Mike McClellan. So international registration is technically open to anyone, but the list is reserved for serious prospects who have real potential. Mike McClellan from MLB does believe this to be the case with Melissa Mayu. He says she's a legitimate shortstop who makes all the plays and is very smooth and fluid in the field. She swings the bat really well and is fearless. She has ended up playing college softball in Louisiana, sort of out of necessity, probably to get as much playing time as possible. She's playing softball, which I would rather see women play baseball if they want to play baseball. But she was on her team at, at LSU. She was hitting 375. Wow. And, and so, yeah, so she's got the skills to pay the bills. Would love to see even though I would have never thought like a week ago that I would ever be saying this, but I would love to see this young woman from France be the, the first female player in, in Major League Baseball. Let's move from Japan to France to Mexico and say hello to Rosie Del Castillo. I've found a couple interesting articles on her. This was from the Banderas News back when Rosie was 18. This was from 2015. And said with her 78-mile-an-hour fastball, teenager Rosie Del Castillo became the first female pitcher in a Mexican semi-pro men's baseball league because there was not a women's league at that level. She was so good that she was actually going up against the dudes and holding her own. She has a fastball, a curveball, and a changeup, which is not bad for an 18-year-old who barely stands at five and a half feet tall. Oh, wow, so she's little. She's an Altuve. A little got a little Altuve to her. Definitely no uh, no Randy Johnson at six eleven uh, sort of vibes. Rosie says that I want to believe that more doors will begin to open for women in baseball, although it won't happen quickly. She plays for the Azulejos of Tamanche, a team in the Liga Meridiana in the Caribbean state of Yucatan. Now this was in twenty fifteen. 
While her pitch velocity is slower than the male average in the league of 92 miles an hour, she was good enough to strike out two batters in a relief appearance in her second game ever. Again, she's got the chops. This is important. Mm -hmm. Let's fast forward to last year, 2021. Rosie made her debut in the Clemente Grijalva League. I am working through every obscure pronunciation in multiple languages tonight, so I expect a trophy. You really are, Mark. We're gonna we're gonna work on that Spanish pronunciation. Maybe we'll go to the Palapa to work on it. (laughs) You know, not gonna get punched in the face with my bad Spanish, but uh, I'm also not gonna not gonna win an an award. That's right. Nobody's buying you any uh, cervezas. She has moved on to this Clemente Grijalva League which is in Sinaloa. And again, she is a woman pitching in a men's baseball league. So she's still facing off against the dudes, but she's also part of the Mexican national women's team and therefore will likely end up competing in the next World Baseball Softball Confederation Women's Baseball World Cup. Did you get all that? <laughs> the- uh, that, was, that was really rolled off the tongue. It's right yeah. up there with All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Yeah. The, More the, words, 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 words. The, the dark horse of this conversation tonight is the acronyms are hell. So, of course, but Jackie, I don't want to insult your intelligence. I know you're well versed in the WBSCWBWC24. Wow. Let's just call it the Women's Baseball World Cup. Not to be confused with the World Baseball Classic, which the boys will be playing next year, but this will be for amateur women from around the world. It it is going to follow like a classic World Cup format. There's qualifiers happening right now in 2022, but the big showdown will be in 2024. Now, the qualifiers are being played in centralized regional areas. So Venezuela is hosting the Americas wing of the qualifiers right now. But yeah, 2024, we'll keep you posted because this, I think this will be very interesting. This will be the highest level of play for women in baseball in the world. And I think it will be a a good indicator if we start getting people excited about women playing baseball and not just playing softball at a college level, but playing baseball on a world level. I think that's a good step forward. It's certainly not going to solve everything. But I think it is going to be a great showcase. I think we're going to see some future pros coming out of this tournament. Maybe they'll be from France, maybe from Japan, maybe Mexico, maybe who knows? Who knows? We're going to take a little break and we're going to come back and we'll see if we can put together everything we've learned tonight all in one handy acronym on the BHP with JM and MB. So, Mark, we've talked about the league that existed back in the 40s and 50s for, for women. We've talked about a number of leagues throughout the world and players throughout the world. Is it time to bring professional women's baseball back? Absolutely. We've talked about this. I can't remember exactly what episode we're throwing back to right now. But baseball's gotten a little boring on the, the men's professional level in the MLB We're worried about the time of the game and we're worried about how many mound visits are being made. And then next year, we're worried about how big the bases are. And it's like, so big, big Big bases. can, Can we have some fun? Can we make this exciting? 
We love going to minor league games because things are a little more unpredictable, a little more random. This is the sort of thing for me that seeing women play baseball is going to be both inspiring for young women and young men all around the world watching them play. But I think as a fan, it's just going to be like, I don't know anything about any of these folks. This is like an all new lineup, an all new team. I'm ready for some unpredictable, exciting discoveries. I don't really care about seeing this like 15-year veteran of MLB like limping into his fourth team. It's like, oh, I wonder what he's going to do. Probably not much. I want to see something exciting, something new. So yeah, I'm ready. Let's, Let's do this. What do you think? Not surprisingly, of course, I'm going to agree with you. I think I think it's interesting because uh, so the 1992 movie, A League of Their Own, very popular. Do you know it is the highest grossing baseball movie of all time? All time. Not Field you, of Dreams, not Bull Durham. Not The Babe? Not definitely Goodman? not The Babe. It grabbed the zeitgeist, right? A lot of a lot of it, a lot of women gravitated to it. The series is incredibly popular for a variety of reasons. Um, But also we have leagues like the WNBA, we have soccer leagues. What has to be done and what was done, why the uh, All-American Girls Professional Baseball League existed is because there was time, money, promotion, player development put into it. That's why it was successful. So And that's what's going on now with the WNBA. I mean, we're here in Seattle. We've been lucky enough to see Sue Bird, her entire career. Amazing player, has really been a great ambassador for the sport. And people are excited to watch the WNBA. The games are are the, the people watching the game growing, people attending the game growing. So why not baseball? You want to, this whole thing of like men, women, men won't watch women's sports. That's not true anymore. What I'd love to see during the Olympics, during big sporting events, U.S. Open was just on, you see the male athletes in the stands supporting the female athletes. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your gender is. We want to see good play on the field. So we're a big country. It's a big world. Let's let women play baseball. I would love to see it. I would, I know you and I would definitely attend games if, the, if a league were to exist. The problem is somebody has to put the time, effort, money, and infrastructure into it. And trying to convince the old white dudes in the boardroom that this is something feasible is not so easy. As the WNBA grows, as women's soccer leagues here in the States grow and grow across the world, Maybe we'll we'll see something like this in, in baseball. Unfortunately, it takes one loud veto to like nix the whole thing. As you were talking, I was thinking about when the former head of Marvel Studios resisted having a Captain Marvel movie because he said people don't want to see girl superheroes. I do. I want to see women superheroes kicking butt on the regular. And now all of a sudden we do have, I already mentioned Ms. Marvel and She-Hulk, and we've got another Captain Marvel thing coming out. People are into it. Yeah, like you said, male tennis players are going to watch female tennis players at the at the U.S. Open. It's because, not just you know, male tennis players. It's it's like basketball players. Like yeah. You'll see LeBron James. Like it's not like it's a crossover. I think if especially if you're a professional athlete, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, you appreciate the amount of time and effort it takes to play at a high level. Game recognized game, right? Exactly. 
So yeah, let's do this thing. If if there are any wealthy billionaires listening to this podcast, please contact us for any number of reasons. But also, yeah, not all of which revolve around you or me, but mostly you and me. But yeah, if you want to launch a league of your own, we'll help you figure this out. Pretty spotted you some of the the first round draft picks here. Let's do this thing. I'm ready. All right, uh, unknown wealthy billionaire. You're you're on the clock. You're on the clock. And Mark's ready to scout for you, so we're good. The fans are heading home. The grounds crew is on the field. And we will see you next time at the ballpark. That's our pal Ron Lewis on the stadium organ. And I'm Jackie Micucci. And I'm Mark Butler. And this was Bad Hops. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of Bad Hops is prohibited unless you like us, review us, or subscribe to Bad Hops. Find us at at Bad Hops on Insta and everywhere else. 